I'm very happy to have the opportunity to speak to Catherine Keller on her latest book, Facing Apocalypse, Climate, Democracy, and Other Last Chances. Welcome, Catherine. Hello, Madhavi. I'm really happy to be in this conversation with you. Well, I think there are a lot of things that are intriguing to people when they think about apocalypse. Apocalypse automatically brings up this idea of doom and gloom and the end of the world. How does that factor into people's behavior related to climate change? And perhaps maybe in relationship to that, how would you like people to actually take that concept in relationship to the state of the world that we're in and perhaps we look at a different different solution or different outcome? Those are the, the crucial questions. What got me writing the book is that I realized that we're going to keep hearing about the apocalypse, whatever we think of the symbol. It's going to keep coming up. It's going to keep coming up largely because of climate change and all of the issues that, that are going to be bound up together with it, intensifying the situation. You know, now we have the strange intersection of, of the war in the Ukraine with uh, issues of fossil fuel, et cetera, climate change. So because of, because of the globality and the, the terminal potential of climate change, uh, not its potential to be the end of the world, but its potential certainly to undo the <laughs> the, the, the structures and the resources of a sustainable, habitable world for us and for the other species. Because we're going to keep facing climate change, we're going to keep hearing references to that symbol, apocalypse, and that's not going to stop. So I think people need to be very fine-tuned to how it is getting used. That is, it often is used in a way that just makes people think, the end is inevitable. And that can sway them towards the sort of literalist, fundamentalist old kind of apocalypse and its new religious right forms that are just all in bed with neoliberal capitalism and irresponsible ecological practices because they think it doesn't matter. Climate doesn't matter. The world's going to come to an end soon and the Lord is going to come and, and we good Christians are going to get raptured into heaven with the Lord. So, so that's kind of the theological basis for the, the, the climate denialism of the right. Uh, but there's a version on the left and right through the middle that is a, a kind of climate nihilism. And that's its own apocalypse. That's thinking that it's just too late to do anything. So even if, you know, even if we think it's tragic and we're against it and we try to be responsible ecologically, if we get into that spirit that it's simply too late to make a meaningful difference, then we might as well join the religious right. We might as well join their denialism because our nihilism is going to have the same effect. It undermines really serious action for the for the, the restoration of a healthy planet. Even though people increasingly are members of the nuns, in other words, they're not necessarily related to any kind of religious tradition, right. but they do have potentially some sort of spiritual belief or culturally speaking, they may not even be recognizing that historical religious beliefs in their families still affect them. This underlying element of why should I put any effort in if the end is already coming, may still run in their thought process. So I wanted to take us back to the beginning, if I can. So in the beginning, we have this perception that God created the earth for humans and the concept of dominion. The, the issue, as we had an opportunity to talk about, is related to the word itself, dominion. 
and how does that convey into responsibility? So here you have this revelations outcome, but could you not argue that that revelations-based outcome is related to a lack of complete understanding of the concept of dominion itself? Absolutely. Right. The, the beginning and, and the end mirror each other, the alpha and the omega. And, and so they share, the, they share the same interpretive fields. So from a particular conservative theological point of view, you do have that absolute beginning. It's not in the Bible, the absolute beginning. It's there it's the beginning, you know, creation from the deep, from the chaotic waters, from great potentiality. But the conservatives make it an absolute beginning from nothing at all, top down, that then creates man <laughs> and woman in the image of him. And, and we're granted this dominion that is taken to mean the right to just use and abuse the earth however we like it. But biblical scholars are driven crazy by this because it's just not what the text says in Hebrew or in any decent translation. The invitation to be in invitation, which it is to be in the image of God, this sense of being uh, a reflection of the God who is calling everything into being, you know, <laughs> let it be, you know, let there be light, <laughs> let there be the ocean, this, this creative process of letting be. Is, is not a top-down process. That's why the oceans bring forth and the earth brings forth all in the same process. And humans are called in this image of God uh, to exercise, yes, the word can be translated dominion, and that means responsibility, a, a responsible leadership. We have e extreme talents and capacities as a species, and that can go extremely bad or it can go responsibly. And that is the call there <laughs> before the story of the fall kicks in and a more tragic sensibility is also uh, registered. So yes, if we have the sense that it's all created for us to use however we want to, then it's not surprising <laughs> that then the, the story of, of the end is turned into an absolute end with some kind of supernatural resolution. That again, it doesn't fit what good scholarship about either the, <laughs> the book of Genesis or the book of Revelation show, where it's more a, a much more interactive and, and complex, open-ended process that is presented. But the, te these, the, the story has, has been used to support a kind of, of Christian power that then got secularized in forms of, of Western power that might be absolutely atheist <laughs> or that might draw their force from the religious right, but that keep emulating these really dangerous misinterpretations of the beginning and the end. How did the negative perception towards the environmentalist adversely or impact in any way the way the church actually, and I'm, I'm, I'm actually unfortunately using it as a monolith, so forgive me here, but affected maybe in a general form the way the church's stance was on environmentalism. Because there, there was a point in time in, in, in US history where the environmentalist was looked upon as this granola cruncher, this crazy person who didn't understand the need for progress, that was valuing the wrong thing. And in many ways, based on our own discussion just now with regard to Genesis and the concept of dominion and stewardship, the environmentalist is probably the one that was per perhaps more attuned or aligned to the basic concept of what dominion means. 
So in the desire to stay financially extant, did the environmental movement adversely impact what was being spoken from the pulpit with regard to environmental action, you think? Oh, I, I think you're right that there are certainly those those tensions around the image of the the uh, environmental radical and you know how that could be incorporated into a church. But on the progressive side of Christianity, there's there's been for a long time, I mean, certainly in a very explicit way from the from social gospel movement of the late 19th century on, an understanding that to be faithful to the biblical heritage is to risk being seen as radical, as, you know, too out there, because that's how the prophets were. That's why they were sometimes stoned. That's why Jesus got put to death. I mean, these, these prophets were radical. So on the prophetic side of Christianity, which does have a long heritage, uh, different forms before the 19th century always, minority forms to be sure, but it doesn't just stop, and it, it has gathered force since the 19th century. On that side, there's the understanding that we're, we're going to seem like mad people, we're going to seem too out there, too radical, but that's no reason not to keep working together on these matters and, and strategize about how to reach wider publics. So some theological publics like that, which I came of age in as a theologian, process theology, my advisor still at it, he's 97 now, John Cobb, uh, so he's helped to found, in his 30 years of retirement, multiple movements and, and working with younger people and getting networks going that are online movements where you don't even recognize the Christian background, like the, the EcoCiv website, which has raised millions of dollars now for ecological civilization. You, you have to dig and dig to find any theological, let alone Christian associations, or the Pendo Populus website, the Cobb Institute website, there you can come more quickly to the theology, but the emphasis is much more on ecological justice. And so, you know, the work keeps going on, sometimes translating itself into these secular forms, but it keeps going on within the theological schools and in with the mar within the margins of the churches. And we keep, you know, trying to fan the flames for a more effectual movement, and it's not happening in the way that we would hope within the churches or beyond the churches, within secular <laughs> institutions, within nation states, with, within even universities. There's disappointing understatement uh, all across the board, given given the level of the emergency. And always there are other priorities and often they're economic. So right now, I mean, we have a president of the United States who understands climate change and understands that the window is closing and, and really wants to be serious about the commitment to make, <laughs> to make the shift to, to, to clean energy a high priority and wanted to use the war in Ukraine as an excuse to do that. But, <laughs> but the gas prices are soaring, and Biden has given permission for a, a really a quite unprecedented level of, of, of drilling and opening up of reserves for oil. So again, I, we, we in, in the church and in the, in, and in the secular institutions, including that of our nation state, there can be such, uh, such really good intentions and even some smart 
moves made, but the economic determinisms can really overrun the potential, can't they? <laughs> well, wait, we could also say that our society is one that has placed value on immediacy relative to the potential value of the future. Yeah. We have really taken out the whole concept of intergenerational equity from the conversation. Yeah. But with that being noted, are there any final comments you'd like to share? Yes, thank you. I would just like to emphasize that I think an occasional meditation on the, the symbol of, of apocalypse, this unveiling that originally in the ancient world actually meant the unveiling of the bride on her wedding night. So actually apocalypsis is a sexy term to start with. And the new Jerusalem has, has sex appeal too. <laughs> the city is understood to be a bride marrying a very queer marriage, uh, the lamb, the bloodied lamb. So I just, I want people to realize even if they are nuns that you don't have to take these symbols with any literalism, but there's some value in, in meditating on this quite hallucinatory ancient set of visions that, that, can, that can help understand that our civilization has for thousands of years been caught in a pattern that was read by prophets as self-destructive. And yet read also with radical hope that by opening our eyes through this unveiling, uh, we can make the needed difference. And it's just possible that now as things get more apocalyptic, meaning not <laughs> more terminal, but more dangerous, uh, more risky for a healthy future, because the catastrophe is going to get worse, it's possible that people will open their eyes. One hopes people will open their eyes in enough numbers before, <laughs> before the numbers get too bad on global warming. Thank you so much, Catherine, for joining us. This is Catherine Keller, theologian and scholar and prolific writer. And I really appreciate your sharing your thoughts. Thank you, Madhavi, for taking on these unfun topics. <laughs> <laughs>